The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat, just as He was. And other boats were with Him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks again, John Austin, for reading now twice for us this morning, and uh, uh, I'd like to welcome all the scouts, boys, girls, cubs, and otherwise. We're, uh, we're just really excited to have you all here and uh, uh, really love uh, everything about what you bring to this campus and also to our city, and, and uh, we're very proud of you. Uh, we're thankful that you're here. What I'd like to do is, is start by um, drawing a, a little bit of an a- attention to a YouTube video that I saw. It was a clip of an interview with Van Jones uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Van Jones is a political and civil rights activist, and he was being interviewed at the University of Chicago. And one of the questions that came up was about safe spaces on university campuses. And Um, safe spaces have to do with the increased demand among uh, college students in particular to be protected from ideas that they don't like, that make them feel uncomfortable or that make them feel unsafe. The stated need among many students today, this is a uniquely American phenomenon, I believe, is to feel emotionally safe on their campuses. And uh, what Van Jones said in response to the question about the, the safe spaces concept is there really are two kinds of safe spaces. One is the space that's physically safe, safe from injury, from harassment, from abuse. And of course, this is the kind of safe space that we all want for our students. But then there's another kind that's being demanded, and that is the, the, uh, the emotional and ideological safety that young people especially are demanding. To be protected from ideas that make them feel uncomfortable. And so Van Jones says the first kind of safe space, safe from physical harm, is, is a good idea. The second kind of safe space, the, the safety from ideas that make you feel uncomfortable, is a terrible idea. And he says this, if you're my child, I don't want you to be safe ideologically or emotionally. I want you to be strong. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. You know, one, of, uh, one of our scout oaths agrees with what Van Jones is saying here. 
It's an oath that focuses on things like honor and duty, and it says, uh, you know, to help other people, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, morally straight. Jesus seems to be after something similar with His disciples, because you, you've got the disciples out in a boat with Jesus. There's a storm raging. They're feeling unsafe physically because of the storm. It's unmanageable to them. And then they start to reveal that they also feel emotionally safe. Don't you care about us, Lord? Don't you care that we're perishing? And so throughout Scripture, the, the, the storm is actually a major theme. And, 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 and death-defying bodies of water is a major theme throughout Scripture. It goes all the way back to uh, the creation account in Genesis where we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the dark and ominous sea. There's chaos there. Then we go to the Psalms, and the Psalms talk about a raging sea. Go to the prophet Jonah. There's a storm, like here, there's a storm at sea, and Jonah's the prophet asleep in the boat, and all the other people on the boat are terrified that they, they're perishing because of the storm, and they throw Jonah overboard, and, and then everything is calm. Uh, Revelation, uh, as the, the last chapters of the Bible are describing the future new heaven and new earth, it says there will no longer, this is Revelation 21, there will no longer be any sea. And by that time, throughout the, the redemptive historical narrative in the Bible, the sea has become a metaphor among the Israelite people and among Christians who are subject to persecution in the Roman Empire. The sea has become metaphorical for death, mourning, crying, or pain. And so, it's more than just bad weather that we're going to talk about this morning because the ocean, these ominous bodies of water, these unmanageable storms also represent the vulnerability, instability, insecurity of being human in a fallen world. We're never completely safe, are we? And what Jesus wants for us is not to create an emotionally and ideologically safe space. He wants to create an inner strength so that we can navigate those emotionally and ideologically fragile realities. He wants to form in us strong, unflappable core. A core that says in the face of storms, whether, whether real or metaphorical, in every high and stormy gale, my hope, my anchor holds within the veil. And I'm no longer a slave to fear, because I am a child of God. So we're going to talk about three kinds of fear this morning. Fear of death, fear of life, and the fear of God that ends all fear. So the fear of death. Let's start there. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And then Jesus responds, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And so, um, let's get to the bottom of what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that we should not have misgivings about dying and about things like bereavement, 
It is a natural fear to fear death because death is an unnatural thing. You know, The Lion King, very famous play and you know, movie, uh, animated movie now, uh, there's a scene there where the young lion is told by the older lion, it really is okay to eat the antelope. You don't have to have any pangs of conscience for devouring the antelope because when we eat the antelope and digest the antelope, we lions then fertilize the grass, and then the grass grows, and the antelopes eat the grass. And then we eat the antelope, and we're all just part of this wonderful circle of life. So the poet Dylan Thomas says that this kind of thinking is dishonest sentimentalism. You probably never had a brush with death if this is really what you feel about death probably haven't dealt with it much yet. What Dylan Thomas says is that we should rage against the dying of the light. We should rage against it. Jesus is not upset about anybody having misgivings about death. Having misgivings about death, feeling troubled about death is not a sign of the absence of faith. It's a sign of the presence of faith because misgivings about death is a recognition that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way that God set up the universe to work. This is because of a curse that came in when we sought independence from God, and it's the only reason why death exists. It's an unnatural thing, and Jesus is going to make it all go away eventually, and so, of course, we should be upset about it. Even Jesus, at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, he both weeps and also gets angry, not at people, but at death. He gets angry at the Garden of Gethsemane where he's anticipating his own death. It says that he's, he's sweating so profusely that he starts bleeding through his pores. And, and, and he begs his father, if this cup of suffering can pass, please let it be so. He doesn't want to die. And then at the cross, when he is in the act of dying, he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, so he's not confronting their concerns or misgivings about death. Death's an unavoidable reality. We are perishing is actually something that all of us in our most honest place will say. We are perishing. For some of us, it's a daily reality because of things like terminal illness or or age that has somehow touched our lives or the lives of people that we love. For others, in in different parts of the world, there's starvation, disease, scarcity of water, uh, religious persecution, where, you know, like like Paul says in Romans 8, they face death all day long. It's like this this forefront thought. When's it going to happen? Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be in 10 years, but it's coming. Now, with with American youth and and affluence, there comes the ability to delay the thought of it for a while, right? Until somebody gets sick, or until somebody suffers, or until somebody loses somebody, or until the disease comes, or until, like me, when I turn 50, you get your AARP invitation. And if you join before the end of this week, you get a free sporty tote. I don't want a sporty tote. I want to live forever. That's what I want. And I don't want you reminding me that I'm not going to. And while you're at it, take this pill from now on. 
That breath you just take, or that breath you just took, it's one more breath toward your death. Each and every one of us has a finite number of breaths. Each and every one of us has a finite number of heartbeats. And eventually, just like the sun, as the second law of thermodynamics tell us, we're going to expire. Mortality rate is still one person for every one person. Let's say that for the next hundred years, we are Christ Presbyterian Church. None of us leaves and nobody else joins us. And for the next hundred years, as long as we're alive, all of us have perfect attendance. Imagine this room a week from now. It'd probably be the same. Imagine this room two years from now. Attendance will go down a little bit. Imagine this room 10 years from now. It'll go down in a noticeable way. Imagine this room in 25 years, then 50, then 100, and you've got an empty room. That's reality. We are perishing. And so, so boys and girls, book of Ecclesiastes, incredible wisdom. It says, remember your creator. Not when you grow up and after you've had all your fun. It says, remember your creator, remember your God from the days that you're young, from the days of your youth. It's never too early to start thinking about our mortality. It's never too early to contemplate every single day that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. He's saying part of the preacher's job is to awaken us all to the fact that there's going to be a time when we're not awake anymore. How would our lives be different if this was our present day and everyday thought, at least for a few moments? So why the rebuke? Why does Jesus say, why are you so afraid? It's not because they have misgivings about death. I think I've already covered that. It's how they are interpreting the storm. It's how they are interpreting the suffering. Because there, there are really two different philosophies in terms of how to interpret suffering and threatening things like hurricanes. You can either interpret it like Job did, or you can interpret it like Job's wife did. Same exact set of circumstances to both of them. Job said, the Lord gave the Lord has taken away. Naked I came into the world, and naked I will depart. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And for Job's wife, her take on the same exact set of circumstances, curse God and die. For Job's wife, the storm was an indictment on the character of God. For Job, the character of God was an indictment on the storm. Which will it be for us when the day, not if, when the day comes? Don't you care? And Jesus says, have you still have, do you still have no faith? Our view of God, our, our, what we really believe about God, cannot be discerned 
when things are going smooth, when we're getting what we want, when we're hitting our goals, when we're making our number, what we really believe about God cannot be accurately discerned. You will accurately discern what your real beliefs are about God when the storm comes. And you will be faced with a decision, will I stay in the boat? Or like Jonah, will I just ask the people around me to throw me overboard because I'd rather be dead outside of the boat than alive and scared in it. Don't you care? You don't know really what the quality of tea leaves are in a tea bag until you put it in hot water and then you take a sip. What is in there, it, it could look to the eye to be really, really sweet tea, but then you, you put it in the hot water, you taste it, and it's as bitter as can be. Or it could look very bitter, like suffering does, like a storm does, but then you put it in the hot water and then you taste it and it's actually really, really sweet. So it is with the human heart. So every Thursday, our different uh, location, our different congregational pastors, Russ Ramsey, Stacy Croft, and I, we have three different locations for our church, one near Vanderbilt, you know, Music Row area, another in Cool Springs. And so the Cool Springs pastor, uh, Russ Ramsey, commented, we, we sort of compare notes every Thursday. And, and, and one of Russ's observations was this, there is considerable irony in this text here because they're asking Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? And this is actually precisely the reason why Jesus came into the world, because we are perishing. <laughs> because we are. We're perishing before we know we're perishing. We're already perished, dead in transgressions and sins, right? Only God can make the heart ultimately alive in Christ Jesus. You know, and so Jesus says, do you still, do you still have no faith? Still, you have no faith. What's he getting at there? They had just recently witnessed several things. Number one, Jesus had, had cast demons out. He had dealt forcefully and with finality with Jesus or, or with, with, with Satan's minions. Cast them out of, of people who were plagued. He had touched and healed lepers at that point in time in incurable disease. He had said to, to a man who was paralyzed from the neck down, stand up, pick up your bed, and carry it out of here. And it happened. They, they'd witnessed all of that. And so, of course, Jesus is saying, do you still not trust me to govern nature? The nature around you, like this storm, or the nature inside of you? Do you not trust me to conquer that which is unconquerable in your strength? Fear of death. There's also the fear of life. Life for the disciples means staying in the boat, which means staying in the storm, which means staying close to Jesus, the wind and the waves are crashing. Jesus is taking a nap while it's all happening. And they wake him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? And, and notice that they don't say, don't you care that we might perish? He says, don't you care that we are perishing? These are professional fishermen, by the way. 
These are people who are accustomed to tumultuous waters navigating them. Really, by this time, they had become more or less fearless of the water and even fearless of storms. But this one was unique. This one was unique. And they are finally coming to the recognition and, and, and making the admission that no amount of expertise, professional training, education, money, or medicine will be able to shield us from death. None. Don't you care? We're afraid of life. You know, Linda Ronstadt, there, there was this very related quote from her that just came out this past week that one of the members of our church shared with me between services today. She said, I'm afraid of suffering, but I'm not afraid of dying. So many of us, we're not afraid to be dead. We're afraid of what we will have to go through in order to get there. Such is life in a fallen world. We're afraid of life in general. You know, the front man for the the doors, Jim Morrison, says, it's strange that people fear death. Life hurts a lot more than death. You know, maybe the disciples' greatest fear is also ours. We're not afraid of being dead. We are afraid of what we will have to go through in order to get there. You know, the subtext from this scripture is this. Life is painful, and then you die. We are perishing. You know, Patty and I, uh, as well as um, Paul and Missy Wallace, also Rachel and Ryan Myers from our community, we were were on the West Coast last Sunday. That's why we weren't here. And we were at a, a leaders' gathering that we're part of every January in Newport Beach. Lovely there. And um, one day I'm, I'm walking with Patty and we're just, we're noticing just the, the opulence, the sheer opulence of the beachfront homes that are there. And I lean over to her and I say, it really must be hard living this way, huh? And then she and I sort of look at each other and we both sort of give each other the look. Yeah, it is hard living this way. It's hard living in any way, shape or form. And maybe you have to hit 50 and get your AARP invitation to start recognizing that. Madeline Levine, who's a therapist right down the road, works with at-risk teens in Orange County, California, one of the most affluent areas in the world. In her book, The Price of Privilege, she says that teenagers who grow up in affluent environments are three times the national average at risk of self-injury. Three times the national average. Richie Sessions sent me this video of Lady Gaga backstage at Madison Square Garden, peak of her career. She's about to go out and be the star of the show again, and she breaks down in tears, and they keep the video rolling. Have you seen this? 
She says this through tears. I still sometimes feel like a loser kid in high school, and I just have to pick myself up so that I can get through this day and be for my fans what they need for me to be. I'm fighting for every kid that's like me, every kid that felt like I felt and that feels like I still feel. I just want to be a queen for them, and sometimes I don't feel like one. You know, you go back to Ecclesiastes, you see that the writer, he has money, houses, romance, power, fame, and he says it's all vapor. It's like trying to hold on to smoke. It's all just slipping right through my fingers as that next breath becomes my next breath toward extermination. Fear God and keep his commands. That's the end of the matter, he says. Remember your creator in the days that you're young. We're afraid of life in general, but we're also afraid of life in Christ, aren't we? We're afraid of being in the boat because that's where Jesus is. And to get close to Jesus is not emotionally and ideologically safe. It's going to push against your angry liberalism. It's going to push against your self-righteous, smug conservatism. It's going to push against it. It's going to require things of you that terrify you. Terrify you. Never forget a conversation I had with one of my friends. He said, I believe everything the Bible says. I believe it's historic. Time, space, history. I believe Adam and Eve were real people. I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I believe that he died and rose from the dead, and I believe he's coming again. But I can't be a Christian. Why? Because if I become a Christian, I know that I will have to forgive my father. The boat, inside the boat is a scary thing. If I become a Christian, I'm going to have to fight for this marriage that's so hard. If I become a Christian, I'm going to have to discipline my kid that I'm so desperate that they like me, so desperate that I'm plugging my emotional umbilical cord into them every single day. can't bear the thought of offending or hurting their feelings. I want to give them a safe space. Then they're going to grow up weak, unable to face the world because of how safe I've made them. But it's so terrifying. Think about saying no when I'm so accustomed to saying yes to things that will hurt them. Right? We don't want to get in the boat. Because in the boat, Jesus says, you've got to be open-handed with your money. You've got to give, 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 and give, and give, and give. You see somebody in need? Give! You're scared to give? Give more. Lay it all down. Trust me to be your provider. That's terrifying. Terrifying. You get into the boat, you've got to be on board. If somebody says to you, do you believe that Jesus is really the only way that you can be in a right relation with God? You have to say yes. You have to say yes publicly because Jesus said that and backed it up. That's scary. If somebody asks you, do you believe in a a literal hell where some people will go and a literal heaven 
where, where, where a literal hell, literal hell where some good people will go and a literal heaven where some bad people will go. Do you believe that? Yeah. Because I believe salvation is freely by grace and the only way to get there is to admit that I have nothing to contribute except my need and Jesus contributes all the rest. That's scary. Socially terrifying. Somebody says, do you believe that sex is only for marriage and that marriage is only for one man and one woman for life? You have to say yes. You have to be too conservative for your liberal friends. You have to be too liberal for your conservative friends. You have to confound people if you're going to publicly follow Jesus. If you're going to be, if you're going to out yourself as a follower of Jesus, it is going to create socially difficult realities for you. You in or out. See, it, we don't just fear life in general. We fear life in Christ. It's terrifying, isn't it? Being in the boat represents obedience, surrender, and death to self. As Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship before giving up his life after opposing Hitler publicly as a German minister, he said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. How's that for evangelism? How's that for a safe emotional space? He wants you to be strong, not safe. Faith is not follow through with the parts of the Bible that are easy for me. Faith is follow through with the parts that are hard, unsettling, and vulnerable. Faith is staying in the boat when it feels safer to jump out of it. Fear of God, that's the fear that ends all fear. Jesus, this is the beautiful thing about Jesus, He rebukes them and then He helps them. He gets fierce with them and then He becomes tender. Jesus says to the weather, peace, be still. And Tim Keller says, this is it's like you would talk to a child, hush, be still. And it says in the Greek that it was so calm you couldn't even see a ripple. That's how calm it became. And the disciples are then, it says, filled not only with fear but with great fear, with super fear, with phobia phobia. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? And the next thing that He does is He gives them more assurance. He cures another demoniac. He cures a woman with hemophilia. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in front of their eyes. He feeds 5,000 people plus women plus children, roughly 15 to 20,000 people when all the math is done, with five loaves of bread and two fish, and they all leave stuffed as if they just had Thanksgiving meal. You believe me yet? You have faith in me yet? And let's test it. And he sends them out into some storms. And he says, now I want you to go out and heal the sick. I want you to go out and, and, and do these things that I've been doing. I want you to go out and confront evil and darkness. And there are going to be people who reject you. You're going to be a social outcast in certain communities. I want you to shake the dust off your feet, go to the next town, do it again. And they do. 
And they experience everything that he promises. It's painful, but they also experience his provision and his power. And the muscle memory of their soul continues to be built, just like a, you know, a, guitar, a person learning guitar, the calluses get, get hard, and, and all of a sudden it becomes the natural way of doing things. To the end that eventually they would give the rest of their lives, living more by faith and less by sight, they became so fearless that ten out of the twelve of them gave their lives up as martyrs. They said yes to death because they wouldn't say no to Jesus publicly. And what happened to the other two? Well, Judas, tragedy, self-implosion. John died of old age. Lucky guy, died in a prison on a remote island like Alcatraz. What happened to them that, 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 that gave them this courage? Jesus gave them an alternate ending to a story that they'd marinated in all their lives, the story of Jonah. Jonah, there's the, the, the similarities are striking. Jonah is another prophet who's sleeping in the boat. A storm comes, an unmanageable storm comes. The others come to him. They wake him up. They say, we're perishing here. Call out to your God. And instead of calling out to his God, he says, toss me off the boat. And the storm will be stilled because I'm running from God. And so they toss him over, and the storm is still just like he said. There's a fundamental difference between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus. Jonah was willing to die because of hatred. He was on the boat in the first place because he was running away from a call that God had placed on his life to go preach the grace and love and forgiveness of God to the Ninevites who had been responsible for so much injury against the Israelites. And, you know, like my friend, I, I, I can't imagine getting in the boat with Jesus because then I have to forgive the Ninevites. And so Jonah is essentially saying, look, the reality is there are two ways for that, that, that storm to calm. Jonah says, you know, for, for Jonah to repent and say, look, I'm, God, I'm going to Nineveh now. I, I'm going to figure, I'm going to work it out. I'm going to depend on you. Help me forgive. I've been a victim. They've been the perpetrator. I've borne the injustice for all, all these years. My people have borne the injustice. But you say forgive just as you forgive me and forgive us. Uh, I'm in. The, 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 the storm would have calmed that way. But Jonah says, I, that is more unbearable, the thought of forgiving, than being tossed into the ocean. See, Jonah was willing to go to his death because of hatred that he wouldn't let go of. Jesus was ready and resolute to go to death because of a love that he wouldn't get rid of. We are Nineveh. We are Nineveh. That's, that's why we're all going to die. Because we have all come against Jesus Christ. Where is the hope? I'll close with this. I'll close with some hope. Horatio Spafford who is the author of the closing hymn that we're going to sing in a, mo in a few moments after the Lord's Supper. He was a Chicago lawyer. In 1871, he lost all of his real estate investments in the famous historic Chicago fire. So he went from ra riches to rags in short order. And then in 1873, he and his wife and four daughters planned a family trip to England so that they could assist uh, the evangelist Dwight Moody in an evangelistic crusade that he was doing in England. And uh, 
And Spafford was delayed because of business, and so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead, and there was a storm at sea, and all four daughters died in that storm, and Spafford gets a short telegram from his wife. The words read, saved alone. Shortly after that, Spafford gets on the boat to England to be with his wife. And as the boat was crossing over the very place where his four daughters went down to their death, he was inspired to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is an unsafe space that makes us strong. Because in that unsafe space is the comfort and safety and protection of our Creator. His presence in the boat with us, even as He sleeps, can carry us through any storm. Let's pray together. Lord, we repeat from the 34th Psalm, You have said, You have said, through Your servant, I will bless You, and we will bless You, Lord, at all times. Your praise will continually be on our mouths. We sought You, Lord, and You heard us. You delivered us from all our fears. When we look to You, we're radiant. Your angels encamp all around those who fear You, and You deliver us. Help us to taste and see that You're good, O Lord. You say that we will be blessed when we trust in You. Those who seek You lack no good thing. Amen.